0: Hi everybody, my name's Dondra and I'm an alcoholic. And, and I'm truly grateful to be here. You know, we, we say that and it sounds kind of automatic, but I want to tell you I mean that. I mean that on a, a lot of different levels. I'm grateful to be back in Minnesota because I just love you folks. I don't think there's better AA anywhere in the country. <clears throat> and I just love to, love to come back here. And I'm also grateful when I get invited anywhere to do anything. Because I went through a long period in my life when the only place I was invited was to leave. Uh and and truly, no matter how many times it happens, every single time it touches me that I'm asked to come and share somewhere. So so thank you for letting me be a part of this great weekend. Uh, everybody has been so kind to me. Jake picked me up at the airport and Dan kind of shepherded me through on the telephone on uh getting our travel arrangements and that sort of thing and a lovely fruit basket in the room, and I got here, and I, I I don't always look at the flowers as closely as I ought to when I get them in the mail, and and much to my surprise, my, my old hero and friend, Bob B., was our speaker last night, and that was just great, and uh, I missed some things today that I'm sorry I missed, but I had a fine sea drive all the way over from Spearfish, South Dakota, to talk about some things, so I thought maybe I'd better Better talk to old John and then Carol, you were just great. You were just great. And you're right. Uh, I sort of feel like, uh, getting up and saying, well, I drank a whole lot and ruined my life and I got in an AA and everything's fine, but Carol's got the deal. Love's the answer. Uh, and, and it is. The love is the answer to, to all of it. And I told John that this afternoon when we were talking. Well, if I let God get me out of the way, and I'm very careful about the way I say that, because the first few years I was giving AA talks, I would uh say, if I can get me out of the way, I'm going to do thus and so. But i got to tell you, getting me out of the way is way too big a job for me. It was too big a job for me in April 1981 when I got sober, and it's no less too big a job today. To get me out of the way literally requires divine intervention. So if I can let God get me out of the way, I'm going to try to do something that's normally really hard for me. I'm going to try to follow directions. Uh, I've had problems with the directions all all my life. You know, if you start out thinking you are smarter than the people who make the directions, it makes it a little bit difficult because you have to kind of interpret, you know, uh, because you know they're trying to manipulate idiots into doing things when they make the directions. So if it says something like do not exceed six in 24 hours, obviously that really means do not exceed 36 in 24 hours or something like that. So so I have a real problem with the directions, but but I believe the nights are, are, are simple enough that maybe even I can follow them. And as I understand it, the directions of what I need to do up here are to share with you in a general way what I used to be like and what happened and what I'm like now. And another little set of directions is in the big book that, that I didn't pick up on and didn't get important to me until the last few years. Um, the book says that our personal stories tell in our own language and from our own point of view how we've been able to form a relationship with our God. And it's really important to me that my story carries that because when I first came around AA, I was absolutely allergic to this God deal. I mean, when you talk about God or higher power, it made the little hairs stand up on the back of my neck. I suppose I thought it insulted my intellect you religious fanatics to be talking about such claptrap, you know, in front of me. Uh so the talk about God and how our power kept running me away. And I'm one of the ones who is so blessed because I was allowed to live long enough for alcohol to keep running me back in here because I had no place else to go until finally the miracle happened. And I'm alive today for one reason and one reason alone. I'm alive because a loving God that I didn't even know was there as far as having anything to do with my life led me to you guys. And you guys took me by the hand and led me through these steps that are our only program of recovery. And those steps led me back to that loving God. And that's why I'm not rotting in a pauper's grave for over 20 years. And I know that. So thank you for that. My body grew up on a tobacco farm in southwestern Kentucky. And I guess the rest of them is still kind of growing up and growing old at the same time. And despite what I was absolutely sure of until I got sober at the age of 37, My childhood was not remarkable. Now, up until age 37, you could have put me on a lie detector box, and I would have passed with flying colors when I told you the saga, it wasn't a story, it was a saga, about how by my iron will and my sterling intellect, I had pulled myself up by the bootstraps from the depths of poverty to those staggering heights I'd reached. And I was so sincere that I would usually have you and me both crying before I was halfway done telling it. And I wasn't sober a week when I realized that that was all a bunch of crap. We weren't even poor. And I was really convinced we were. I'm not exaggerating. And fact is, we weren't close to poor. We were middle class farming people who had everything we needed and a lot of things that we wanted. Uh, And those heights were a whole lot more staggering than they were high. It's been a a lifelong project for me, frankly, drunk and sober, to try not to become a legend in my own mind. Uh, looking back on my childhood, what, what was going on was selfishness and self-centeredness. You know, the book tells us selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. My first sponsor, who was Cherry Carpenter from Nashville, Tennessee, uh Cherry explained to me in real early sobriety that what that means to me is that the first thing wrong with me is that I've got a disorder of my ego. And all the rest of it has flowed from that. The obsession with alcohol, the physical allergy to it, the mental, physical, emotional, spiritual illness, it's all flowed from that disordered ego. And he explained to me that on account of that disorder of my ego, that all my life I've been so obsessed with how I feel. I've been so obsessed with how I believe I stack up against other people that all that obsession with myself has created so much pain and so much emptiness down inside me that I've never been able to stand the way I feel without either running as hard as I can or trying to stuff something in there to make me feel good enough that I can stand it. And looking back, that's the story of the first 12, or 13 years of my life. That's all there was to it. I tried to keep all the bells ringing and the mirrors flashing and the sirens going on to try to stay a half a step ahead of a screaming fit for those 12 to 13 years. Try to keep you from seeing what was in here and what was missing down here so that I wouldn't have to stop and look at it. Because a part of me, I believe, always knew that if I had to stop and look at what I really was, what was missing and what was there, that it'd be like the earth would swallow me up through that emptiness in my own belly. Uh, another couple of things about what I was like, uh, it, it was always my ambition to be an alcoholic. That's what I wanted to grow up to be. Uh, but I didn't know that until I'd been sober about a year. And looking back on it, it's real simple. By by the time I was four or five, <coughs> uh, I looked around at the decent, responsible, hard-working men in the community where I grew up, and here's what I saw. I saw the dullest-looking bunch of old guys that you ever saw in your life. These guys would drive these old beat-up, paid-for pickup trucks, with not know anything on them. And more often than not, they'd be married to some lady that, even when I was a little kid, she'd be really drab-looking, you know, back then, wear those old flour sack looking dresses and and usually have a whole house full of those snotty-nosed kids. And, and those guys would get up every morning of their life, go eat breakfast with that drab-looking woman and all those kids, go get in that old beat-up, paid-for pickup truck, go right exactly where somebody had told them to go. And all day long, they would do what somebody had told them to do. And then what just truly blew me away, I, I couldn't comprehend it at all. At the end of the day, they would come back to the same people they had left that morning. And they'd eat supper and go to bed with the chickens, get up the next day and do the same thing. And then maybe on Sunday, you'd see them load the crew in the pickup and go up the road to Julian Baptist Church or down the road to Locust Grove Baptist Church. And then on Sunday afternoon they might do something like go visit people for heaven's sake. And and, and see part of my ego disorder is that I to this day I can't have but one knee jerk reaction to anything or anybody. And I thank God I don't have to act on it today all the time. And if you're an alcoholic, if you'll think a minute, you probably know what my knee jerk reaction is. What has this got to do with me? So I looked at those guys and had the only reaction I could have, and that is well you a little boy. And they're grown men, so maybe when you grow up, your life or parts of it might be a little bit like those decent, responsible, hard working men, it like scared me to death. It absolutely terrified me to think that any part of my life would be remotely similar to those decent men. Now by the time I was seven or eight, my older brother Dan, Dan's thirteen years older than I am. Uh and Dan didn't cause my alcoholism and I'm not I'm in no way knocking or in meaning to make fun of medicine, psychology, counseling, or treatment centers. I believe page 133 of that book with all my heart. I believe that God has filled this world with wonderful doctors and counselors and that we should not hesitate to use them if we need them. I also believe that if we take that particular, easier, softer way of trying to take our alcoholism to those poor folks instead of bringing it to this fellowship and to these 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, that it's a whole lot like taking a jellyfish to an orthopedic surgeon. I just don't think there's anything inside us that those good folks uh, can work can work with. So, but but I'm not in any way belittling any of that. I, I probably would not be alive today had it not been for hospitals and counselors and doctors. But uh <clears throat> and I also believe when we're trying to do that, instead of using these twelve steps on our alcoholism, I believe we are standing on a whale's back fishing for minnows because I believe all the power in this universe is available to us right there through those 12 steps, hooking us into all the power. But at any rate, I don't have any idea what a dysfunctional family is. And the reason I don't is I've never met anyone who claimed that they had come from a functional family. So unless I can identify a functional family, I don't know what in the world a dysfunctional family is, but I'm pretty sure I was the most dysfunctional thing in my family. And, and, and by the time I was 7-8, I had aggravated Dan until he would occasionally take me with with him to shut me up over into the wet county. We have dry counties in Kentucky where they had the beer joints. And I would sit around and drink big oranges and eat pickled eggs while Dan drank beer. And I would observe and listen. And first thing I observed was that those honky-tonky roads had a lot of big fancy cars out there that they couldn't afford. And we would walk in there and I would swear on my children's heads that I don't have a more vivid memory in my life than I do right tonight of the way those guys would look sitting at that bar. My Lord, it was the most impressive thing I had ever seen in my life. They'd do things like just gaze down into that beer, look like they were lost in it, you know, plumbing its depths. And, and I took one look, and I knew those I intuitively knew, those guys were intelligent, deep, and romantic. And, and so much more interesting than those old drones out there on the farm doing what people told them to do. And, and I'd look over in a booth and I'd see one with his arm draped around some lady that looked a whole lot more interesting to me than those old gals in the flower sack dresses. And, and, and those fellas didn't care if they were married to somebody else. They didn't care if women were married to somebody else. But the most magic thing of all, I didn't get to finish the first big orange until I had overheard enough conversations to know that nearly every one of those guys was only about that far from being rich and famous. Every one of them had at least one great big deal that was going to pop, and they were flat going to be somebody. Now, it was usually a good big deal, but not always. Sometimes it was a bad deal, but if it's a bad deal, it's still a big deal. And I was told early on, I got a disease of big deals. That's what's wrong with me. My whole life's been one big deal right after another. Good big deals and bad big deals all stumbling and falling over one another. And I was further told in the first month I was sober that if I was ever going to have any comfortable sobriety, I was going to have to learn to act like, because it was explained to me that I was clearly too sick to ever get to the point where I would feel like that any time I make the big deal out of anything, anything, including my health, including my kids, including those things that are clearly too important to turn over to God, and we all know those are money and sex. You know, and including anything, that I make a big deal out of anything in this world that is not God and not these 12 steps, that what I'm really making a big deal out of is me. Because I don't make such a big deal out of it when it happens to your kid. I don't make such a big deal out of it when it happens to your body. If you got to go do a little jail time, I may think you can do it standing on your head and it might do you a little good. Who knows? But you let something happen to me, and oh my God, it's the most terrible deal of the world. And I found out over the years that my sponsor was just exactly right. Big deals are killers. If I'm going to have big deals, if I'm going to make a big deal out of anything and therefore a big deal out of me, I'm back into ego and I'm back into alcoholism. And if I make a big deal out of me sponsoring people, I can't effectively sponsor many people. If I'm going to let it be about me and I'm going to claw my chest and die when somebody drinks because I caused it, I can't sponsor many people. I can't do very well at work. If everything I do is such a big deal that it paralyzes me and I've had to be so careful and overwhelmed with it, I can't I can't have those big deals and work. I and work. can't make it work. But I didn't know that 50 years ago in those beer joints in Gracie, Kentucky. And, and what happened is that I took my first good long look at those guys and what I was looking at was self-will one riot. I was looking at total lack of consideration for other people. I was looking at total disregard for honesty on any level. And I fell in love with everything about it. From the first time I got my good first good look at it, the only real ambition I had was to grow up to be just exactly like them. I wanted to look like them. I wanted to sound like them. I wanted to treat people the way they talked about treating people. Because all I had to do was listen. Those guys would tell you they didn't take any crap off anybody anywhere. I wanted to put off the very vibrations that they put off. And I got my ambition. I just didn't know what the right name for it was. Another quick thing about what I was like, I believe, until I got sober at 37 years old. And my sobriety date, by the way, is April the 9th, 1981. And the math is I'm 58. Darn it. But Dear dear Chris here came up right before Carol spoke and said, Hey, if you had glasses, you'd look like Dr. Bob. Hell, I'm still thinking Tom Cruise, you know. (laughs) It, It was... It was just last year I gave up my aspirations to play Major League Baseball. It, 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 and I've been crippled since 78, but that uh, I let go slowly. But, but, but at any rate, uh, I don't believe until I was 37 years old and got sober that I hadn't ever been able to give any serious consideration to the possibility that there might be a power greater than myself that had anything to do with running my life on a daily basis. Now, I was all right with some sort of intellectual theory about a creative force or sort of a celestial CIA, you know, a central intelligence. But when he got down to the possibility that there was a personal God, very very simple a personal God. Bill talks about it in Bill's story, and my religious friends talk about a personal God. When he got down to the possibility that there was something more important than my little old brain as far as the actual conduct and the unfolding of every minute, of every hour, of every day of my life, my ego vetoed that possibility and said no we cannot consider that there's anything above your brain as far as actually taking care of every little detail of your life as it unfolds and i believe on account of that same ego disorder that i didn't have any teachability or humility whatsoever until i got sober and the reason i believe that is i've never been able to remember a single time in that 37 years that i ever voluntarily followed a suggestion that anybody made about how to run my life unless I understood it and I agreed with it and I thought it would work. And, you know, not only did that make perfect sense for me for 37 years, what's scary is it doesn't sound too bad tonight. You know, because after all, I'm going to tell you some things in a minute that will probably lead you to suspect I might have a little tendency to be a tad crazy poop, you know. But the big difference between crazy and stupid So so why should I do something about my life voluntarily if I don't understand it or I don't agree with it or I don't think it'll work? When I get honest, it's real simple. I've got a talking illness. My alcoholism has been running its mouth all of my life, and I've always had an old crazy picture show in the back of my head. And I am so grateful that I was told early on that recovery didn't necessarily mean that those things would go away. That what recovery meant was that I would get to the point where I could usually recognized that they were not reality and i did not have to obey them and chuckle at them go and do the next right thing anyway and you see if i could always do that just say hey that's just another one of those insane ideas dressed up like common sense and and all of my insane ideas identify themselves as common sense by the way i've never had a single one walk up and say good morning don i'm a crazy idea and i'm here to try to kill you because if it did that i wouldn't mess with it i'd step around it so they all come up grinning you know hey don i'm common sense how are you this morning buddy and they start talking about how special i am you know and what special stresses i've got on me that are different from your guys stresses and and it assures me that whatever it is i know in my heart what the right thing to do and my brain is assuring me if i don't do the opposite it'll be a total disaster this insane idea dressed up like common sense to say hey don If those other folks in AA had all these unique stresses on them that you've got, they'd do it that way too. And they'd say, you know, a lot of them are really doing it that way, I'm sure, and just won't admit it. So you know you got to do it. It's just common sense. And if I could always recognize that and just say, hey, that's an insane idea. That's my illness talking to me. I'm going to go to a meeting. I'm going to call somebody in the fellowship. I'm going to pray. I'm going to go read the big book and go on and do the next right thing. That'd be fine. But my alcoholism is not a simple illness. It is a many-splendored thing. It's got more heads than a hadron. And one really big part of my alcoholism is that if it's anything at all, it's an illness of perception. And what that means real simple. That means I don't see things right. I don't hear them right. I don't always recognize them for what they are. Bottom line. If I'm not going to do it, unless I understand it, I agree with it, and I think it'll work. And what that is, is the ultimate veto power in the universe, in my brain, named common sense. But if I do that, I put myself under death sentence with what I've got wrong with me. Because I'm going to wind up believing one of those deadly lies that my alcoholism tells me trying to get a drink. I don't think my alcoholism ever tried to kill me. I've nearly died of alcoholism dozens of times, but I don't think it's trying to kill me. Because I believe my alcoholism is the perfect sociopath. I don't believe it's got but one reason for existing, and that's try to get itself another drink. And it'll tell me things that will kill me or will, might kill you. It'll tell me totally inconsistent lies back-to-back with one another. Doesn't care. Just sling it all up against the wall and hope some of it sticks. It just wants a drink. And if I've got that ultimate veto power in the universe, I'm going to wind up believing one of those lies. And I'm going to pick up that drink and I'm going to die. Uh, <coughs> got drunk first time when I was either 12 or 13. At first night, I got in a lot of trouble. I puked, blacked out, passed out, got in an awful lot of trouble. Woke up next morning, had a terrible hangover, and swore all those baptists were right, and I would never do it again. And I could not have been more sincere. And it was nearly a week until I got drunk the second time, uh, because the magic had happened. At the time, I did not know the magic had happened. At the time, all I knew was that for a few minutes on my way to puking and getting in all that trouble, I had passed through a right pleasant neighborhood. But but looking back on it now, I know, of course, it was the magic. When I got enough of that stuff in me for the first time, it did something about that pain and that emptiness, that obsession with myself had created all my life. You see, that that ego disorder in me has always made the way I feel the most important thing in the universe. And that was so ingrained in me that I'm convinced that it never crossed my mind until I got sober at 37 that there was any other way for a human being to live. I remember the first time Cherry said to me, he said, Don, the way you feel has always been the most important thing in the universe. And my reaction was, so? No. Well, what's your point here? What else could be the most important thing in the universe to a human being? <coughs> And what happened? Because that did change the way I feel. It made me feel good enough inside that I could stand it for the first time for the next 25 years. When I wanted to change the way I felt badly enough, it didn't matter what it cost, and it didn't matter who it cost. Because the way I felt was the most important thing in the universe. And I believe that that's at the very heart of my powerlessness over alcohol and the things like it. For that 25 years that I drank, and I'm not going to spend much time on that. uh Now I'm, I'm I suppose that like most of us, I could make my log tragic, and I could make my log funny. The real truth is my drunkologue is more pitiful and sad than anything. That's the real truth about it. And it's also more ordinary and more mundane than my ego can, can, can quite stand, to tell you the truth about it. You know, alcoholism isn't the illness of superlatives. Uh, if, if we can't be the best at something, that's usually our preference, is to be best, but Second best for us is not second best. The second best thing we can be is the worst. You know, just as long as we can be at the extreme, that's what we want to be. But the fact is, my alcoholism was sad. It was penny-ante. It was, it was, it was humiliating. It was harmful to other people. For those 25 years that I drank, alcohol dominated everything in my life. Uh, I went to bed drunk at least 80% of the nights. It wasn't something that was a sometime thing in my life. It wasn't a part of my life. It was my life. Uh, you either had to accept the way I drank and the way I lived along with the alcoholism or you had to, live, had to leave my life. I knew that by the time I was 16 years old. And for that reason, and I'm not proud of this, I've had to make a lot of amends and I believe it's a pretty good partial description of a sociopath. I didn't have people in my life. I had positions. And whatever your position was in my life, I knew like everybody else that eventually you'd blow the whistle on my drinking and when you did, if I couldn't change your mind, I had to replace you. And whatever your position was, I usually had your replacement interviewed at all times. Uh, school was real easy for me, and by the time I was 16, I'd gotten in enough trouble with my drinking that I felt like I had to leave that farming community where I'd been born and grown up. So I left high school, and I took a Greyhound bus to Louisville, Kentucky, which is the big city in Kentucky, and it's about 200 miles from where I grew up. And I wound up after a few days on the doorstep of the University of Louisville, and they gave me a bunch of tests for a few days and let me in as an early admission student. And over the next eight years, I drank and worked my way through undergraduate and law school, and that's all just an absolute blur, just an absolute gray blur. Uh, in the spring of 1968, I graduated from law school, and my daughter Dana, who is 34 now and was my only child for over 20 years, was born. I started practicing law in downtown Louisville, and for about ten years, until February of 1968, I practiced with some degree of success. I have to kind of hedge a little bit on that, because the first several years that I was giving talks all over the country, I couldn't have been more rigorously honest when I was telling you guys how fantastically successful I'd been. You know, I sincerely believed that if it hadn't been for a little problem with alcohol and Awesome some slight procrastination here and there, maybe. I'd been greater than F. Lee Bailey, you know, just really hot stuff. And and the truth is if I lived to stay sober thirty years, I may have been a total failure. I don't really know. Uh but but I but I do know that I had some material success. And that's what I stuck in your face when you suggested there was something wrong with somebody who lived the insane life that I lived in that ten ten years of my life. At least a third of the nights I made no attempt to go to bed. I passed out in some circumstance other than going to bed. I've gone to court and tried many a case without having laid my head down. take a handful of pills to try to overcome the booze and and go in there and try the case uh, uh, my my relationship life was was just so insane that it doesn't it it truly doesn't bear doesn't bear mentioning because it was absolute insanity. The reason it bears mentioning is that my relationship life, which I won't go into detail on tonight because we got to get out of here before midnight uh, uh, I am not proud of that. I'm not proud of that. And I've had to do an awful lot of eighth and ninth step work based on that. But I'm also not going to fail to laugh at myself when I have acted ridiculously. That doesn't mean that I'm not very sorry that other people got hurt on account of it. During that 10 years, from 68 to 78, I began to use a lot of things other than the alcohol. But just like they were with Bill and Dr. Bob, they were sad shows to the booze. The booze was the big tent. They were things to change the effect of the booze, increase it, decrease it. help me try to function on the hangovers, but the booze was the big tent. February 10th, 1978, I wound up full of scotch, cocaine, Quaaludes, speed, vodka. I drove a a sports car off the road at 130 miles an hour. Uh, I had a young lady with me who was not my daughter's mother, and at the time of that wreck, I was remarried to my daughter's mother. Now, the big book says at one point that it is hoped that that volume, the big book, will be so compelling that it will require no further authentication. What I'm about to give you is an opinion, so please feel free to ignore it. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, what I've just told you establishes my alcoholism without further authentication. And the reason is this. There's nothing wrong with my daughter's mother. She's a wonderful woman, was then, remains a wonderful woman today. But you noticed I said I was remarried to her at the time. Nobody in the history of the world has ever done that except us. Not one time. If a normie even considered going back and marrying somebody that they just jumped out of the frying pan with, they'd tear the dough off the asylum trying to get in to protect themselves, and we do it all the time. And what's so bizarre is it seems to work, you know, part of the time for us, I guess because there's such drastic changes in our life. You know, it's just routine. All Joe and Sue divorced, but they're dating, they'll probably get back together. Uh, but at any rate, the young lady I had with me was not my daughter's mother. Uh, that wreck did an awful lot of things to my body. It broke both legs, crushed both knees, lost the main artery in one lower leg, had to do a bypass in the upper leg, take out a vein to uh replace that artery, and separated my pel- pelvis and pulled my plumbing into so it didn't have a urinary function for over a year. I uh, had what they call a supercubic catheter, which is just a plastic tube with a flange on it, where they bore a hole in your abdomen, pop that sucker into your bladder. Uh, uh, It was two and a half months before they stood me upright on the electric tilt table for the first time. The doctors told me early on that I would never walk again without braces on both legs and one or two canes, and that they did not believe that we would ever be able to find a surgeon anywhere that would attempt to put my plumbing back together, Um, just for the record, and through no following of directions on my part, I might add, but by the grace of God. Uh, I've been sober a little over 21 years, and I haven't owned a bracer or a cane for over 22 years. And uh, about a year after the wreck, the head of urology down at Duke University did put my plumbing back together and restore my urinary function. The first year after that wreck, I was in the hospital for six months out of that year, had a half dozen major surgeries. Uh, my reaction to the prognosis that I wouldn't walk again with all of, out all those contraptions and I'd never have a urinary function, was that I would lay in that hospital bed, unable to even be set upright on a tilt thing. I would lay in that hospital bed and every day have my friends bring me booze and more dope than the doctors were giving me. I'm not talking about occasionally, I'm talking about every day. And I would lay in that hospital bed and say really intelligent things. Like, you know, fellas, anybody can quit drinking when the going gets a little tough. But it takes a man to lay in there with it when the bills start coming in. And then I'd start talking, I'd give them my talk about a man didn't need to be out there doing the crime if, it, if he wasn't prepared to do the time. And they weren't going to hear me whining just because the bills had come in and give me another drink and let's go on with it. And that's real insanity. It's real powerlessness. I didn't go broke the first year after that wreck. Um, a little law firm of seven or lawyers had built up around this other lawyer and myself, so some money kept coming in. My daughter's mother uh, finally divorced me. Uh, and uh, for the last time and uh, and I wound up married to the lady who was with me when I had the wreck who was hurt but not as badly as I and by the time about a year after that wreck had rolled rolled by I still had my my braces and my crutches and my catheter bag and my tube in my belly it was around the first year of 1979 and the phenomenon of craving that the book talks about had had progressed in me To the point where once I started drinking alcohol, I just pretty well physically lost the ability to stop myself from drinking it. I always had the phenomenon of craving. I had the phenomenon of craving the first drink I ever took, but it progressed over the years. And for all those years, for over 20 years of my drinking, the terror that if I drank around the clock the way I needed to, because nobody ever had to tell me that drinking in the morning would cure a hangover. I was born knowing that somewhere in the marrow of my bones. And what kept me from doing that for 20 years of drinking was terror. I didn't have any real ambition. What motivated me was terror that if I didn't get out of that bed and stick that toothbrush in my mouth and puke half the mornings of my life for 25 years and not know that was abnormal. Didn't know that everybody didn't throw up about half the time when they'd brush their teeth. In fact, I'd started doing it when I started drinking at 12 or 13. I sort of vaguely related it to having reached puberty. And, and, and you know, you don't discuss it. You don't you don't sit around cocktail parties and say, Hi, sweetie, did you puke when you brushed your teeth this morning? Yeah, you don't talk about that much. But at any rate, it was the fear that if I didn't do that and try to put on the right clothes and go where I thought I was supposed to go and make the right noise, that you'd see what I was and I'd have to face it. And the earth would swallow me up through that emptiness in my own belly. Uh <coughs> They got me in that first, in my first asylum, and I'm not using that word to be cute. Bill Wilson uses that in the big book, and my mama used that word. Fact is, a lot of the places that I'm describing as asylums were, in fact, psychiatric hospitals. Uh, I have had multiple diagnoses of emotional and mental disorders, all of which I believe were right on the dot, spot on, because I am unaware of any mental illness and emotional illness that alcohol and drugs can't cause. I believe At the time I was diagnosed with those things, I had every single one of them. And about half or more of them were, were treatment centers for drug and alcohol. But I just lumped it into asylums. So they got me in that first one. They got me through the three or four days. See, when something did separate me from alcohol by that time, it took three or four days for me to be physically able to do something like set up in a chair. As you might be able to gather from the operations and all that sort of thing, I have felt some powerful physical forces in my life. I've never felt anything, even in the league, with the last couple of hundred times I had to withdraw from methyl alcohol, most powerful physical force I have ever felt in my life. Well, they got me through the three or four days, and and that's when I was able to do something like set up in a chair After three or four days. They set me up in a chair and, for some strange reason, thought an AA meeting would be appropriate. So they got an AA meeting started there, and somebody got up and read the steps. They got step three. We had made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him, and that offended my intellect. So I climbed up on my crutches and straightened up my catheter bag and said as loud as I could, do you mean to tell me there are people in this world who believe such crap? Then I hobbled on over the telephone, and I called somebody to get me away from the religious fanatics before they somehow polluted my pristine intellect. Now, that was somewhere around the first year of 1979. I wound up getting sober about two and a half years later in April of 81, and I really don't remember much of that. Some of the things that I do know happened are that I went back to the asylum 17 more times. Uh, I became addicted to hard narcotics. I became a needle street junkie, and I'm real grateful for that because that brought enough pressure on my law partners to cause them to kick me out of the law firm that I had founded, and I proved I wasn't going to hit bottom as long as I had a Timex watch. I sure wasn't going to do it with a law firm. And let me just throw in something about bottom that's meant so much in my life and so much in my sobriety. You know, the first several years that I was sober, bottom was just such a mystery. And it seemed so unjust. It seemed like that we were just like little dry leaves out here being blown around on the wind. And if we were blessed and or lucky and got blown to bottom... And we got to get sober and live a spiritual life and have a great family and wonderful friends. And everything was just great. But if a poor fella, poor fella caught a bad uh, updraft and just didn't get blown to bottom, then they just had to die a mad dog death. And that didn't seem real fair to me, and I couldn't figure it out. And, and to me, it's so different, because let me tell you, booze and dope was just the first bottom that I hit i worked out in my head kind of roughly that I think the last 21 years I've hit some sort of bottom, an average of every eight and a half days for the last 21 years. Uh, and, and all of my bottoms are the same thing now. They are about 85% decision. Decision. And a decision to me today is so different from an intention. Those things didn't used to be any different to me, but they are absolutely completely different today. My intentions do not become decisions until I am acting on them. If I tell you I've made a decision to go to New York in the morning instead of back to Louisville, you say, it's Don, what have you done? If I start telling you what I'm going to do in the morning, you say, no, Don, you had not made a decision to go to New York. You've got an intention to go to New York in the morning. And my bottoms are all this. They are a decision. A decision that I'll do anything, anything, to keep from living the way I've been living and feeling the way I've been feeling. And when I'm acting on that decision, I've hit bottom. Doesn't make any difference what it took out there to get me there. Doesn't make any difference how many people have died around me, how many bodily functions I've lost, how many times I've gone to jail. If I haven't made that decision, not willing to make that decision and live that decision, I ain't hit bottom. But at any rate, that's what my bottoms are today. Uh, <coughs> some other things that happened in that two and a half years where that after my law partners kicked me out of the law firm, the state of Kentucky jerked my law license shortly after that. Uh The internal revenue took my portion of the office building we'd built in downtown Louisville and a couple of things along those lines, and the mortgage companies took the homes that the ex-wives were in. My new wife had to leave me on account of my insanity, and during that period she was staying with some girlfriends and died in an accident. I last laid eyes on my daughter in January of 1980. I didn't see my only child for over three years. Uh, didn't see her or, or talk to her for over three years. After all material things were gone, my daddy was in his late 80s on the farm with nothing but his social security, and I went and stole that to keep on drinking on. I've got a much older, badly crippled sister, crippled with polio when she was a child, and I, I endangered her very life using her to keep on with the drinking. I burned every bridge. I destroyed every relationship. For almost a year and a half, up until the fall of 1980, I lived without an address. I lived on what I called the street in an expired Blue Cross Blue Shield car. And I lived every day of that with the conscious conviction that I had to die of alcoholism. And the way that happened to me seems real clear today why I had that conscious conviction. You see, a good half of those places I'm calling asylums had treatment programs that were based on the 12 steps. And since I didn't have anywhere to go, if I was able, sometimes I'd go to a lot of meetings between trips to the asylums. So I had a head full of information about Alcoholics Anonymous. In fact, it honestly and truly is one of my sincere and frequent prayers right today that I never know as much about AA as I did before I could get sober. And I mean that with all my heart. And what would happen during that year and a half is one of you guys would tell me how AA had saved your life and changed your life. My brain or my illness, and those are interchangeable, by the way. If I'm talking about my brain talking to me or my illness talking to me, I'm just trying not to use the same word too much, but the exact same thing. And my brain would go, yeah, I know it works for you guys, but y'all don't understand how complex and intelligent I really am. You know, y'all don't understand what a broad stage I've played on, and my God, my tentacles have just touched so many, and, and, and y'all don't understand, certainly I know I'm an alcoholic, and for that matter, a dope too, but, but don't you understand, those are just little symptoms or results of this terrible and magnificent complexity that's my real problem. And then I'd get teary-eyed wishing I could be simple-minded like you folks, you know, and, 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 and address these little, these little symptoms over here and, and talk about your little myth of a higher power and compulsively go to your little group therapy sessions you, you call meetings and somehow expect this terrible and magnificent complexity to go away. But it wouldn't work for me because I was so mad. My God, I and mean, you know, I saw things more clearly than ordinary people. And, And I felt them so much more acutely that I was just wounded by my own understanding, don't you know? Uh, So it wouldn't work for me because I was so magnificent. Now, the very next heartbeat, I'm talking about without dropping a stitch. One of you would tell me how AA had saved your life and changed your life. And my illness would go, yeah, I know it works for you guys, and I'm really glad. But you guys don't know about the parts of me that are just missing and always have been. You don't know that I've never been able to love anything or anybody, not even myself, not really. And you don't know that I've never been able to be consistently responsible about one single thing in my entire life, not one. And you don't know that anything in my life that looks like it was good or even okay is some kind of pack of lies and a house of cards. And you guys have got people and things left to get sober with and to get sober for. You don't know how bad I've been. I've absolutely destroyed everything and salted the earth behind me. There's no reason for me to try to get sober because there's nothing and there's nobody left, so it won't work for me because I'm so terrible. very next heartbeat, it'd be telling me it wouldn't work for me because I'm so magnificent, and I was believing it both times. I didn't know this thing wrong. The fall of 1980, I washed up on the doorstep of asylum number 17 in Nashville, Tennessee, Found out later they let me in because they didn't think I would have lived a week had they left me on the street. Of course, I had no home. I had no no car. I had no clothing. Uh, my teeth were rotting out of my head. Uh They took me in, kept me in there about a month until it was time to boot me out, and Of course, I had no place to go. And uh, I had a roommate in that asylum who was a young fellow, and his family lived there in Nashville, Tennessee, and they felt sorry for me and said, Don, why don't you come stay with us? a few days and let's try to figure out what to do with you and I want to tell you in fall of 1980 what to do with me was quite a question Uh and I went and lived with them a year on absolute charity and for the first six months I didn't stay straight but I got better and I believe in all, with all my heart that in my case I had to get some better before I had the capacity to grasp this program and you know I always said it's an illness of superlatives so I, I'm truly just telling you the truth I'm not trying to brag about how bad I I, I was Mass sponsor, Cherry Carpenter, who's been dead about 13 years now. But I found out about three years ago, when I was like 18 years sober, I was at a discussion meeting. Being sober, had had one more slip and had gone to Cherry. And Now, by that time, I was on the road and just doing great in sobriety, you know, three years sober in a lot of ways. But old Jim had gone to Cherry and said, I want you to try to sponsor me. said, I don't think it will do any good. I think I'm constitutionally incapable of being honest. I think I'm too egotistical. I think I've got grave emotional and mental disorders other than alcoholism, and I have absolutely no confidence that I can get drunk or that I can stay sober. But if you'll try to sponsor me, I'll try one more time. And I found out that my loving sponsor had looked right at Jim and said, Jim, let me tell you something. If Don Major can get sober, anybody in the world can get sober. And I've never known whether he was giving me a compliment or insulting me. It's just sort of a a mystery. But I believe I did have to get a little better. And during that six months between the fall of 80 and April of 1981, I went to a world of meetings, most of them at a clubhouse there in Nashville called the 202 Club. I got to where I could go as long as uh, two or three weeks without getting ripped, and that was a world record for me in or out of an asylum. I'd never been that long since I'd gotten drunk the first time. And the real kicker was that they only put me back in one rubber room in that whole six-month period. And, of course, the rate I'd have been going, I'd have been delighted to settle for twice a year in the asylum the rest of my life. You know, that looked like the picture of mental health. Uh, In in late March of 81, uh, I got on my most recent drunk to date, and it was another one of my pop-off vodka-slash-Listerine drunks, and I have truly drunk a barrel of both of them and 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 this is very honest i have better memories of the listerine than i do of that old hot pop-off and not just because you could get it 24 hours a day it actually tasted better there were times when i had the pop-off and would choose to drink the listerine now my if any of y'all think about trying it uh my medical friends tell me that i was playing absolute russian roulette and it was some regularity just kills one of us to drinking the listerine so i don't recommend that you try it but my memories are better than the pop-off uh And by the time April the 8th of 1981 rolled around, that was the last day I drank, I'd been drunk ten days or two weeks, and I was sitting on the edge of a bed in a motel in Nashville, and a loving God started giving me a whole lot of gifts. Now, for the first few weeks I was sober, I had no idea that there was any such thing as a loving God or that anything was giving me any gifts. And this is just real important to me. You see, coming off that most recent drunk of man did not feel any different than the 199 before. I hadn't seen a burning bush yet, guys. If I had kept waiting to believe that Alcoholics Anonymous could take take care of all the terrible and magnificent things wrong with me, if I had kept waiting to feel like AA would work and was working for me, to start blandly doing what you guys and what this big book told me to do, I would have been rotting in that pauper's grave somewhere around Nashville for over 20 years, and I'm not guessing at that. That loving God gave me those gifts, and the biggest of those gifts was the first tiny little bit of teachability or humility I'd ever had in my life, the first willingness to do some things that were suggested, even though I didn't understand them, I didn't agree with them, I didn't think they would work, and I certainly did not did not want to do it. And I had no idea that I had that gift. Three or four days after my last drink, when I was able to stumble, I stumbled back to the door of that clubhouse in Nashville. And I did not think they would let me in, and frankly, they should not have let me in. Uh, I've been on the board of directors for a club up home for over 15 years, and we wouldn't dream of letting somebody back in that done what I did. Uh, the, I used to pass out in their AA meetings and have to be bodily carried out. Uh, they'd caught me shooting dope in their men's room. They had warned the people they sponsored to stay away from me, that I was a loser and I was going to die. About two months before I got sober, I was walking through there, and I remember, At two months before I got sober, I had been intensely exposed to AA for over two years. I'm walking through the clubhouse and a big old tall boy named Joe walked up and looked down at me and said, Don, I'm beginning to think you really are too intelligent for this program, and I thought he was giving me a compliment. I really did. My knee-jerk reaction was, well, thank God they have finally figured out who they're dealing with here. But he went on, and he said, and you know, Don, that's a real shame because we've never had anybody too dumb for this deal. And we buried you buttholes all time. And something about that stuck inside. I knew that man was talking to me, and it was still stuck there when I stumbled back to that door two months later. And they did let me in. They said, yeah, Don, come on in. It's keeping us sober, son. Uh, And I said, will y'all tell me one more time what I need to do if I want to live? And they said, sure. Don't drink, don't take dope, and go to meetings. By the grace of God, the first 60 days, I went to over 150 meetings. Now, I clearly remember that during that 60 days, it was absolutely clear to me that all those meetings were not necessary, and were not doing much good, and I was still very, very certain that you guys were religious fanatics, uh, and and my brain was still assuring me that what I really needed to do was get my head out of the sand get my butt back to Louisville, get some money, get a law license, big car, good-looking woman, for heaven's sakes, be somebody. But I'd been given that beautiful gift that I didn't know I had of being able to turn around in my brain and say, yeah, partner, I know. But you and I have nearly killed one another. And we don't have any choice left except just to go to these dumb old meetings, even though they can't possibly work for somebody as terrible and magnificent as we are. And the miracle is that those meetings worked just as well as if I had thought and felt they were exactly what I needed. I had it all backwards. I thought in order for AA to work, I had to believe it would work. I thought I had to feel like it was working. The truth is, I thought I had to be able to see the causal relationship between this cause and that. didn't have a thing to do with it. All I needed to do was get my raggedy butt to meeting after meeting after meeting, and let my old sick brain and soul get dragged in there kicking and screaming behind my raggedy butt. Then they told me if I wanted to live, I was going to have to read the big book. And I said, but I've read it three or four times. They said, we know, Don. Said you've been criticizing the literary style and quoting it to us while you've been dying, dummy. They said, if you want to live, said you've got it in your head somehow that this is a philosophy book, and there's something in there that you can learn, study, or master that's going to somehow transport you to a sublime state of sobriety. He said, Partner, that ain't going to happen. He said, because this deal of sobriety is not a learning process. And my mouth fell open because I was sure that was what it they said, no. I said, Don, you have known enough information about Alcoholics Anonymous for two years to stay sober and relatively comfortable a day at a time indefinitely maybe for the rest of your life, without ever learning one single other bit of information about Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, what's killing you isn't what you know and don't know, dummy. What's killing you is what you're doing and not doing. That what this deal of sobriety and recovery is, is not a learning process, it's a doing process. In fact, he went on to explain that knowledge without action is not useless, it's worse than useless because you're far more miserable when you know the right thing to do and not do anything you are when you don't know the right thing to do. And they said, if you want to live, you better understand that what this book really is, is a simple instruction manual for your actions. And if you want to live, you pick that book up and you come to it as a little child. You act like you have never seen that book before. And you start at the front cover and go through it land for land, reading only the black part. You read the Roman numerals. You read the table of contents you pay a special attention to those parts that clearly don't apply to you. And don't you be looking for anything to learn. You be looking for what it suggests you do. And when you run into something that suggests you do, you do it. said those things that clearly don't apply in your special case, do those first because you'll need them worse than anything. It was was at that time that they explained to me that there's no program for recovery. In fact, there's no program of Alcoholics Anonymous except the 12 Steps. They explained I'd be a member of the fellowship on any day I've got a desire to stop drinking. Thank God that's the only requirement. And a lot of us, including myself, have stayed dry long enough to get into the program for recovery on that wonderful fellowship. But they explained that even if I was going to 10 meetings a week, if people were dumb enough to ask me to speak without having worked the steps, talking all over the country, if people were dumb enough to ask me to sponsor, sponsoring people, and working part-time in a treatment center, If I wasn't either somewhere in the process of doing step one through nine, the way that book says to them, in order to reach a state of recovery, or having done that, living every day of my life on 10, 11, and 12, in order to maintain my spiritual condition, get my daily reprieve, I was not in the program of Alcoholics Knowledge. I was only in the fellowship. And they explained that if I did that, I would have absolutely no healing of what's really wrong inside me, that ego disorder. That inability to be comfortable inside myself, that dis-ease, except through those steps and only through those steps. They explained to me that those steps work on alcoholism like penicillin works on an infection. If I've got an infection that's going to kill me if it's not treated but will respond to penicillin, I don't need to understand all the ins and outs of my infection. I don't even need to really believe that that little infection can be causing all these terrible things wrong with magnificent meat. I don't need to understand one single thing about how penicillin works in the human body. And here's the picture. I don't even need to want to take the pills. If I've got the infection and I take the pills as directed, I'm going to be you. And they explain to me those steps are the prescription for alcoholism exactly the same way. They're not there for me to learn or not learn, memorize or not memorize, agree with or not agree with. They're not there for me to study. When I do the steps all day, I'd, Just for me, I don't call it a step study thing because I think we would study the steps until we turn blue in the face and pass out. It won't do a bit of good. I call it a step use discussion. And they they explained to me that if I'll use those steps and do what it says do there, that it'll work on alcoholism just as sure as that penicillin will work on that infection. And it's worked exactly that way. Then they told me if I wanted to live, I was going to have to get on my knees every morning and every night and ask the power greater than myself to get through the day without drinking and drugging and then thanked that power at the end of the day, and tears came to my eyes, and I said, I can't do that. The second step is what's been killing me. And I tried to explain to him the truth, and it was the truth, that from my first exposure to AA, I knew that if I was going to live, it'd have to be through AA. And I knew that if I was going to live through AA, I had to somehow change the way I thought and felt and believed to make it more like it looked like to me you thought, felt, and believed. And I had tried every way I knew to do that. I tried every way I knew to adjust my insights to change what I thought, felt, and believed, and I couldn't. So I'm sitting there literally with tears in my eyes explaining that I can't do the praying because the second step is killing me. And they said, Don, you've got that backwards too. They said, we have never suggested that you think people believe anything. And my mouth fell open because that's at the heart of this ego disorder. It's this insane conviction that what I think, feel, and believe is the center of the universe. My Lord, we can't have little Donnie doing something he doesn't feel like doing. You know, it's just awful. It'd make him a hypocrite. And we get sober and do our inventory, and after a while, we can, you know, get a little smile out of our past larcenies and adulteries. And and even if enough time's gone down the circumstances, right, we can get a little subtle smile out of an occasional homicide. But my God, we don't want to be hypocrites. You know, doing something we don't feel like doing would just be awful. And they said, no. Said, Don, we would never have suggested that you think, feel, or believe a thing. They said, son, you are way too sick to have any valid thoughts, feelings, or beliefs whatsoever. And they said, in the second place, your thoughts, feelings, beliefs are your illness. And what's going to determine whether you live or die is not going to be what you think, feel, or believe, but what you do. They said, if you want to live, you get down on your knees morning and night, and you start saying those words, and don't worry about what's going through your head. And by the miracle of God, sometime in April of 81, over my brain's loud veto, I started getting on my knees morning and night and totally acting as if, and saying those words. And the miracle of the second step began to happen, I began to come to believe. There in Nashville, I lived in Nashville sober, 21 months, never was able to find a job, uh, when I celebrated a year sober, I was living in an attic with no phone, no car, teeth finishing, rotting out of my head, happier than I'd ever been in my life. Never knowing from week to week how I'd get the rent paid on that attic. Uh, when I was a year and a half, and, and they led me through that second, the second step led, they led me to the third step. They almost never got it through my head that the third step is not complicated. They almost never got it through my head that the third step is not a process. They almost never got it through my head. The third step doesn't turn a single thing over to God. That it's merely a decision. And that it's the first of the action steps. Steps one and two, they explained to me, don't require action. They require that I reach conclusions. But when I get, and, and they've told me that they're called steps for a reason. That they could have called them the twelve propositions, the twelve tenets, the twelve bunch things. But in a conventional staircase, the actual base of step two rests on step one. It must have step one or it cannot exist. And they said that's why they're called the steps. They said they have built one on top of the other, and if you weren't supposed to work it in an order, they wouldn't have numbered them. Uh, so they finally got it through my head that that if a person doesn't know whether they've done the third step by alcoholics anonymous, don't worry about it, they haven't. Because the third step in some sort of wallowing process that happens to us. It's action. And it's specifically the specifically described on pages 62 and 63, you've done it or you have They went on to tell me, if you don't know where and with whom you did that third step out, you probably haven't done it. They led me through steps four and five, and I, I made my inventory, gave it away, and formed a picture of what a spiritual dawn ought to look like. And I blew right past steps six and seven. It seemed clear to me, by that time I knew I had to have God's help, that six and seven were where, with God's help, I went to work on me to make me into what I would decided a spiritual don ought to be. I got on into eight and nine, and when I was a year and a half sober, it's a pure byproduct of doing eight and nine. By the way, the main purpose of eight and nine took me a, a long time sober to realize that that book means what it says. The main purpose of eight and nine is not to bring up my past. The main purpose of eight and nine is not to put my life in order. Our real purpose, the book says, is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and those around us. And you'll find every one of the steps they that. You see, my illness is self-centeredness. Folks say this is a selfish program. B.S. It's a selfish and self-centered illness. Certainly, it's a self-caring program. If I don't take care of my sobriety, I'm useless to nobody. But my illness is self-centeredness, and I cannot effectively treat it with more obsession on self. And it doesn't make any difference if I dress that obsession up in psychological clothing or if I dress it up in spiritual clothing. When I'm trying to do that, when I'm trying to treat an illness that is self-centeredness with more obsession on self, I'm trying to put out a fire with gasoline. And it simply is not going to work. But as a pure byproduct of 89, my law license got put back in order. In January of 1983, 21 months sober and scared to death, I went back to Louisville and began to try to pick up the pieces of my law practice. I had left Louisville and and lost my law license in a very public manner and a very dis- dis- very dis embarrassing manner to the bar, I had panhandled in front of the courthouse where I had thought I was such a hot shot and had tried to be such a hot shot. I had brought the entire bar into disrepute in Louisville. Um, it wasn't something that people didn't know, people knew. But I went back up there, and I didn't think Louisville AA would work like Nashville AA worked. I was sure it wouldn't. But I threw myself into those dumb old Louisville AA meetings, and guess what? They were just fine. thank you. The second month I was in Louisville, by God incidents, I wound up talking at the Kentucky State Convention in front of 2,000 people. My story was in the newspaper with what seemed like every fact about me except my last name. I thought that was terrible. Wound up being the foundation of beautiful things in my life, just like everything else. You see, I don't need to ever put value judgments on events in my life because I'm always wrong. You know, if I look at it and see, and see this most awful thing that ever happened and there can't be any possible redemption to it, if I'll simply not drink, keep stumbling in the right direction, it'll wind up, I guarantee you, being the foundation of the most beautiful things in my life. If when I first glance at it coming down the road, I think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, it's probably getting ready to try to kill me. You know, and I, I need to lay aside those value judgments on what happened. That same month, February of, of 1983, I saw my daughter for the first time in, in over three years. Two months later, she moved in with me, lived with me all through high school. And she's been in Al Island about 18 years now, and uh, she's a successful artist in, in Virginia. And, and she and I are dear friends, and we share God, and we share a program. <laughs> Just a couple of months ago, she called me on my cell phone. It was the end of the workday. And, and what I was doing, I was going downtown Louisville, to, the head tailor at the clothing store where I get my store my clothes had had come to me knowing my history and wanted me to take him to a meeting. So I was going to pick him up for the first meeting. And she called me and asked what I was doing. And I told her, she said, oh, Dad, how great. I'm taking a gal to a first Al-Anon meeting tonight. When that little girl moved in with me, she was an agnostic. Uh, and uh, only God can do that. Now, I don't want to paint an unrealistic picture, Dana and I can get on one another's nerves bad enough to make the other ones break out in the halves, and we do regularly, but there's so much there that more than ever events there would be. All these great things started happening. It was just beautiful. The first nine years of my sobriety truly were just wonderful. Uh, people started asking me to sponsor them. They started asking me to talk to all different places around everywhere, and I started making a little money. So the first thing you know, I'm driving decent cars and wearing nice clothes. And everything was great except for the first nine years of my sobriety, relationships with the object sex and financial chaos like to have killed me. They like to have beat me to death, and my God, I worked so hard on them. See, those were the primary character defects that were inconsistent with my picture of a spiritual dawn, and they certainly were the ones that were making my butt uncomfortable and embarrassed. And whatever it was, I'd grab it by the collar, and the tools I would use on it were things like rigorous honesty, prayer, meetings, steps, sponsors, outside counseling, I'd slam that sucker up against the wall and say, come here, God, give me a little help. We'll get rid of it. And God never showed up and I didn't know what was wrong. That's nine years. I'm sponsoring 40 people. I'm talking at conferences all over the country and I'm dying inside from financial chaos and chaos in my relationship with the I don't know what's wrong. I wound up, and I'm going to shorten this and sit down here in just a minute, but I do want to tell you a couple of things before I sit down. Um, May of 1990, Cherry, my first sponsor, died. I wound up getting Tom B. from right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. My first meeting with Tom, I went up there, and there was an A.A. golf tournament for Akron Cleveland A.A.s. bunch of old heads, one old boy that had drank with Dr. Bob. Uh They didn't get me out of the airport before. They said, oh, yeah, and I told Tom I'm staying. I said, oh, yeah, sober about nine or ten years. Says that's about the time most folks begin to look at steps six and seven. I think, well, this old fool doesn't know who he's talking to. You know, I would listened at that time to over 50 or 60 fifth steps. You know, I'm sponsoring a room full of people. Uh, by the time I left there that weekend, a realization, a becoming real, what is so different than knowing to me today, a realization with regard to six and seven had begun to take place that even though I could have quoted the seventh step prayer to you backwards if you'd given me five minutes and sat down at the table with me, it wasn't real to me what it really said. Prayer doesn't ask God to remove all my defects of character, and it certainly doesn't ask God to remove the ones that are making my self-centered butt uncomfortable. It asks God to remove each and every one of them that stands in the way of my usefulness to God and my fellows, and I don't have any idea which ones they are. I believe with all my heart that I am very probably standing here tonight in most places that I stand, and I'm very probably sponsoring most of the people that asked me to sponsor them because of the pain that I had so deep in sobriety. Because of those embarrassing character defects that could not, I could not get rid of, that I worked on so hard, and they persisted so long, and I saw no redeeming value in those things staying, but I believe it's primarily because I was able to not drink and keep stumbling in the right direction, and eventually get relief on those things that I mainly have something to share with you guys tonight. God knew what He or She was doing. And it turned out, you know, I said I thought six and seven were where I went to work on my character defects with God's help. 12 and 12 says it specifically, and Bill's story refers to it, a piece of non-conference literature. Of myself I'm nothing, the Father does the work. For nine years my brain edited that to read, of myself I'm not enough and I have to have some help from God. That's not what it says. It says of myself I'm nothing, and the Father does the work. I can't work on my character defects and get rid of them any more than I could successfully work on drinking and taking dope. I've got to be willing to act like I have laid myself at my God's feet and said, Mom, Dad, I don't know where we are or how we got here. I have no idea where we're going or how to get there. But I'm going to come to you as a little child, even though I'm scared to death and my brain's telling me to do the exact opposite, and I'm going to quit fooling with the patterns. I'm going to quit trying to figure out the patterns in my life so I can know where to start stitching. I'm going to accept that the only job I'm capable of is the stitching, that the patterns belong to you, and you just try to lead me in the right direction. I'm going to tell you how that's worked for me. That was 12 years ago this month. If I had made a list of everything that I thought was the best that I could have in my sobriety, I've got my wonderful wife, Sharon, that about and in June of 1990, a month after that, I started seeing, and the only trick I used on Sharon was that 11th step trick. You know, praying, Lord, please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand her rather than to be loved, comfort, and understood by her. If you've never used that in human relations, use it, because it's absolutely magic. It doesn't make any difference whether it's waking your beloved child up with a kiss or whether it's facing somebody with good reason to want your hand. When we remember to pray, Lord, that will be done. I'm no longer running the show. And please let me seek to love, comfort, and understand rather than to be loved, comforted, and understood something natural, something absolute magical. So that's the only trick I use, Donor, and I believe that makes us irresistible in every way. And Sharon and I will have been married 12 years come this next December the 26th, and I don't have problems in my relationship today. i will got friends that say it's not healthy not to have arguments. Feels awful dang healthy, I'll tell you that. Feels mighty healthy to be, you know. And Sharon and I both, we're both the same age and we've been around the horn. She's not in the fellowship, uh, doesn't need to be. She's probably heard me talk 200 times and will no doubt go to heaven for that if nothing else. Uh, but but Sharon and I both try to give 100%, each one of us. We don't try to go 50% the way, we try to go 100% of the way, and we don't have that. Everything in my life is better than I would have been able to order. And I, I want to close by telling you just a couple of things. And I'm sorry I'm taking so much time tonight, but if y'all are done before I am, go ahead and leave. But I I I, 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 I do want very much to share this. Um, I told you the condition in which I left the Bar Association in Louisville when I was kicked out of the Bar Association. Um, about eight or nine years ago, I got a letter from a big fancy law firm, silk stocking firm we call them. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? It wasn't a letter, it was a phone call. I looked at it, and I said, God, what have I done? I thought, well, Don, you're not doing anything anymore. You know, go ahead and call. Them. So I called, and they wanted me to be on something called the um, Citizens for Better Judges Committee. And and that, in our area, we interview people who want to be judged in order to make determination whether they qualify to sit on the bench <laughs> or not. <laughs> this year, i chair of that organization. They'll run my name in the paper as the chairman of the organization that interviews and endorses the people that they believe are capable of being judges. About a year ago, I got a letter in the mail from a judge, uh, and it asked me to be a master in the inner court. There are a little over 20 of those. Most of them are judges, uh, from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals right next to the Supreme Court down, the head United States Attorney for our district in Kentucky. The most successful and respected lawyers in Kentucky. Somebody screwed up at asked me. And you can't get there from here. You know, you, you can't get from where I was in April of 1981 to here. That is surely God. What I did with my life was destroy everything about it. One quick thing. I told you, I started getting on those knees in April of 81. As far as I know, I hadn't missed the morning or night. And I'm not telling you that to tell you how good I am. I'm telling you that because of all those thousands of mornings and nights good half the time, I either hadn't wanted to, hadn't felt like it, or clearly hadn't had time. A lot of the times I've been so scared or obsessed that I couldn't remember the last word. I just tried to pray, and it's frequently felt clear to me that the words were bouncing off the porn ceiling and it couldn't possibly be doing any good. But I've got down there every morning and every night, and something has worked every single day. And I have no experience to share on staying sober without getting on my knees every morning and every night because I've been absolutely unable to do it. It's the only way I've ever been able to stay sober. Truly the final thing, my middle stepdaughter is named Kathleen, Kathleen's 28. Um, Kathleen made a determination about four years ago that she wanted to try to go to law school, and her only career objective was practice with V. And this past Wednesday, Kathleen was sworn into the bar circuit. And Thursday morning, instead of Don Major, attorney at law, we became Major at Saturday. And this is one of the many, many gifts that I've had this wonderful program. And you new folks, please keep coming back. I know I'm an old fool up here, whacking, snot, and talking about all this stuff. And I'm, and I'm wearing expensive clothes, and you think I couldn't possibly have ever had a problem in my life. I want to tell you, I had them every one, just like we all did. I had them every one. And this program is just especially designed for you and your special problem. It's designed just precisely you and i love every one of you thank you so much